Well, we'd like to welcome uh, several people who usually are, are infrequently not here. Uh, Custis Wright tells me that she's just passed her 94th birthday. Wow. <laughs> and we're uh, very glad to have other people, Jack Farrell, Tom, Tom Staley, and Joanna Hitchcock. Uh, our speaker is Philip Waller, and as you will know, he is a fellow of Merton College, uh, and his book is called Lightweight Reading. <laughs> it's 1,553 uh, pages, Writers, Readers, and Reputations, Literary Life in Britain, 1870 to 1918. Uh, Philip and I have a connection in different ways. He's a former editor of the uh, English Historical Review, and he has a connection also with the history of Oxford University Press. Uh, this is a volume that we edited uh, some six, seven years ago. And when it went to the press in its final stage, uh, the Oxford University Press, like all university presses, requires a, a final formal reading sent out to two readers who send in critical responses and lets the delegates know whether the book is a good book, a bad book, whether it should be published or not. So we got a very, very critical review, uh, and I identified the author. It was <laughs> Philip Waller. And so we recruited him, and he now has a chapter in the book as a result of having written the reader's report. Uh, I wanted to say one other thing that in the, uh, the book itself, The History of Oxford University Press, there is a quotation on lightweight reading, and it's from Harold Nicholson. And he says that nothing but the, uh, the serious but overworked person is not always very intelligent in the matter of light reading. And so he recommends two categories of books, uh, detective novels and scholarly study of a subject unconnected with the reader's ordinary profession. So with that, let's welcome Philip Waller. That's extremely generous of you, recollecting my part in the, yeah, the university press's self-regarding history of itself. I, I, of course, disemboweled myself with my own pen as a consequence of having to do that uh, chapter, but I think you might find it amusing. I appreciate the generosity of your welcome. Um, you were far too generous, therefore I also feel an imposter. But to, to business, an analysis of unsparing rigor of a major turning point of history is the ideal choice for a seminar such as this. That was certainly my intent until I remembered that historians are spoil sports. And the whole purpose of historical research is to prove that turning points turn less than people suppose or actually never turn at all. So instead of a great drama, I'm going to present you a little diversion. <coughs> Let me begin by inviting you to exercise your imaginations and picture an identikit mid-Victorian bearded bloke looking much like an Old Testament prophet who, after his morning's intellectual <coughs> exertions and a spot of lunch, likes nothing better than to stretch out on a chaise long in the conservatory, cigarette in hand, eyes half closed, while his wife reads to him from Dinah Mullock Craik's Agatha's Husband, 1853, a triple-decker he's ordered from Mudie's circulating library, in which the eponymous heroine is an orphan and an heiress. Courtship occupies most of the first volume, 
In the second, the plot thickens when her husband Nathaniel discovers that his brother, a characteristically villainous major, has embezzled most of Agatha's fortune. And if there are any villainous majors here this afternoon, please twirl your moustaches. Nathaniel determines to keep his dastardly brother's misdeeds from Agatha while he sorts things out. And his secretiveness and further misunderstandings cause husband and wife to suspect each other of infidelity, whereupon Nathaniel starts acting coldly towards her and Agatha ends volume two, crying uncontrollably. In volume three, the truth is eventually revealed and Nathaniel and Agatha fall into each other's arms, this time amid tears of joy. So who was the bearded bloke and what's the moral of all this? Well, his name was until September 2017, quite literally common currency the face of the British £10 note because he was Charles Darwin and during the morning he'd been scribbling away on the origin of species. As for the moral of my tale, it may seem slightly to be stretching the evidence to rank Agatha's husband alongside von Humboldt's treatises as a seminal influence on evolutionary theory. Still, it doesn't seem to have done the great man any harm and who knows, this relaxation may even have provided him with affirmation of his philosophy of life, of progress and harmony, not in spite of, but because of the apparent setbacks and conflicts. Darwin's favourite reading was always family sagas of the Agatha's husband kind, in which he could fret about the fate of the heroine quite as much as if she were his own daughter. His son George took a dim view of this and was horrified at the amount of romantic trash his dad consumed. <laughs> Darwin himself was unrepentant and told friends that he couldn't abide the loftier sort of novelists because, quote, they cheated him of a happy ending. <laughs> now, George Darwin's embarrassment about his father's literary taste leads us naturally to Sood's Corner, that hallowed burial ground for pretentiousness which this year celebrates its golden jubilee in the satirical magazine Private Eye. Intellectual affectation is inseparable from the reading habit. One question that always seems calculated to incite this is, what book has most influenced you? When the novelist Vincent MacDonald was asked about this, he immediately started to rummage around in his mental attic to come up with a suitable immortal from the Irish literary pantheon, as would most flatter him as a fellow Irish scribe. Was it to be James Joyce's portrait of an artist or that tough and nut Ulysses? Tricky this, but at least MacDonald recognised he couldn't get away with saying Finnegan's Wake because no one would believe him, it being completely unreadable. You'll recall A.J.P. Taylor observing even the words were gibberish. Modernist writers like Joyce disintegrated the traditions of English literature in the same way that the artillery blasted the landscape in the Great War. Joyce went right through literature and came out somewhere on the other side. Poets, of course, have always been allowed to drift off into dreamy unintelligibility. That's how we expect such unworldly creatures to behave. That is, not to make any sense and to starve accordingly. <laughs> but the whole point of prose is that it must be understood. During the first half of the 20th century, the standard of living for the generality of British people was higher than throughout their entire previous history. It was unforgivable, therefore, that they were let down by a literary elite 
producing incomprehensible or unappetising stuff, just at the point when books had never been cheaper. It wasn't a matter of waiting for ordinary people to catch up with the literary fashion. Most people never got there because, having values of their own, they didn't want to get there. Anyway, why should the common reader take to modernist authors who showed such clear contempt for them? Back to Vincent MacDonald. When he got home and thought again about the question, he realised he'd been a fraud. It wasn't an esoteric classic, but, quote, a cheap dog-eared paperback by Tex Burns that had most influenced him. Tex Burns was the pseudonym of Louis Lamour. You, you may never have heard of Louis, but perhaps you should, because no less an authority than John Wayne considered him the world's most interesting man. <laughs> can you have a, any finer praise than that? Actually, you can. Still, you might think that Louis Lamour, such a perfect name for fiction writing, that it was beyond improvement, yet he twice gave himself a makeover. A North Dakota vet, animal vet son, Louis started out with the surname Lamour. He then Frenchified it into Lamour, the better to weave his magic. By the 1950s, Louis was churning out not bodice rippers, but westerns, 250 million worldwide, and when you're hitching up your chaps and buckling on your Colt 45, hard-bitten Tex Burns rather than heart-rending Louis L'Amour was the man you wanted to ride out with. Vincent MacDonald was aged seven when he chanced on the rustlers of West Fork. His household contained no books and he didn't know what a library was, but... Forty years on, he could, quote, still recall the thrill, the excitement and the suspense of the story. One scene in which Hoplon Cassidy escaped over the mountains with a crippled man and his daughter during a blizzard is still vivid today. It made him want to be a writer. The craze for asking what books most influenced people is likely as old as reading itself. That it once had religious implications is obvious because leisure time consumed by mere entertainment was suspect, the devil having plenty of work for idle minds as well as idle hands. Recreation in its purest sense meant just that, recreation, a renaissance, a rebirth, a refreshment of the spirit, by God's grace, purged of iniquities. The modern age goes in for secular religions, of which the foremost cult is socialism, hence the interest aroused in 1906, when the 29 MPs who comprised the first Labour Party in Westminster were asked what books had most influenced them. Socialists have their own sacred texts, Therefore, you might assume that Marx's gothic thriller, Das Kapital, or his Reader's Digest version, The Communist Manifesto, would top their list. He didn't. Marx got two mentions. Even devotees, such as the Clerkenwell compositor, Tommy Jackson, who became a founder member of the Communist Party of Great Britain in 1920, reckoned that Fewer than 50 people in all Britain had read Das Kapital through to the end. George Bernard Shaw boasted of being one and declared it, quote, the only book that ever turned me upside down. He remained in that position, according to Max Beerbohm, for the rest of his life. <laughs> Rather than Marx, the decisive influences on the 29 Labour MPs were Ruskin, with 17 nominations, Dickens, with 16, Carlyle, 13, Walter Scott, 11, Shakespeare, 9, Robbie Burns, 8, Tennyson, 6, Charles Kingsley, 5, Thackeray, 4, and so on. The basis of British socialism was ethical 
not economic. This was confirmed by 14 nominations for the Bible, eight for Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and four for the Free Church Minister and Edinburgh Professor Henry Drummond, whose Natural Law in the Spiritual World, 1883, is now virtually forgotten. That Methodism shaped the emerging Labour Party more than Marx did is a familiar thesis. You might object that the first Labour MPs, indeed politicians generally, hardly qualify the intellect for the intellectual heavyweights of my title. Most pioneering Labour MPs lacked formal education beyond the board school. Instead, they personified a working-class autodidact culture that gathered strength as the Victorian age progressed. Then it was that countless ordinary people exhibited an unquenchable appetite for knowledge and read voraciously. Importantly, autodidacts were, and are, unconfined by specialism and are keen to acquaint themselves with the classics of every field. Now, it's a short step from asking what books most influenced people to telling them what books should most influence them. <laughs> The Victorians did not hold back in the finger-wagging department. <coughs> its departmental head was Sir John Lubbock, a polymathic brain box and versatile man of action, remembered now, if at all, as the originator of bank holidays, the promoter of legislation to preserve ancient monuments, and as an experimental biologist who played his violin to bees, to prove their deafness. As president of the Working Men's College, he lectured there in 1885 about the 100 best books. This was published in his slim volume, The Pleasures of Life, 1887, which in various guises sold a quarter of a million copies and appeared in over 30 foreign editions. Lubbock's best 100 were organised by category, religion, science, philosophy, ethics, logic, history, political economy, travel, natural history, biography, the epic, essays, poetry, drama and the novel. It was a stiff test by any measure and Lubbock cheated by smuggling in as one item the entire works of his own favourite star authors, such as Homer and Walter Scott, whereas others, Aristotle and Plato included, were limited to individual texts. Still, Lubbock shunned insularity of any sort. While British authors predominated and the adequacy of translations was problematic, <laughs> he took in not just all Europe, but headed out east, incorporating a large slice of the Quran and Persian and Hindu epics before reaching Confucius's Analects. This last, he remarked magisterially, he didn't particularly rate, but he included it because, quote, it was held in the most profound veneration by the Chinese race, containing 400,000 million of our fellow men. Moreover, he added sweetly, it's quite short. <laughs> Lubbock did not otherwise measure up to today's PC standards. He was emphatic that books, quote, must be read for improvement rather than for amusement. He conceded that, quote, light and entertaining books are valuable, just as sugar is an important article of food especially for children, but we cannot live upon it. Furthermore, there are books which are no books, and to read which is a waste of time. Well, there are others so bad that we cannot read them without pollution. If they were men, we should kick them into the street. His hundred, therefore, comprised only books that, quote, no one can read without being the better for them. But don't think Lubbock was a Thomas Gradgrind utilitarian. 
literature that made better workers was, he wrote, useful no doubt, but by no means the highest use of books. The best books elevate us into a region of disinterested thought where the troubles and anxieties of the world are almost forgotten. Lubbock had many an imitator. Indeed, pretty well every busybody bore and humbug in the land tumbled over themselves to issue rival lists of the best hundred books. And not just the nation's ordained ministers of God assumed the missionary position. So did a Regis professor of history at Cambridge. This was Lord Acton, whose own hundred was, as you'd expect, even more forbidding than Lubbock's. But to suppose that every Victorian was fitted with a humour bypass is preposterous. <laughs> On the contrary, Ernest Homily inspired iconoclastic comedy. The hundred best soporifics was hailed as a truer depiction of the exercise. And quickest out of the blocks to poke fun at it all was the author of The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow in 1886. A railway clerk trying to scratch a living as a writer, he dedicated his book to his pipe before pronouncing in a preface, what readers ask nowadays in a book is that it should improve, instruct and elevate. This book wouldn't elevate a cow. I cannot, I cannot conscientiously recommend it for any useful purpose whatever. All I can suggest is that when you get tired of reading the best hundred books, you may take this up for an hour. It'll be a change. Three years later, the same writer, Jerome K. Jerome, penned his masterpiece, Three Men in a Boat, in which the Victorian work ethic was dished once and for all. I love work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> Did Lubbock's best hundred have no takers then? It might seem a chronic exercise in futility, an operation omniscience designed for some priggish model world citizen of the future, except that Routledge's, the publisher, brought out all the titles in a series, and there is evidence of people like Police Sergeant Hewitt of Finsbury Park, who considered himself a cut above the artisan class, regularly pondering Lubbock's list. His son noted wryly that it included nearly all the books one didn't want to read, or gave up if one tried. Books you'd expect to find in every intelligent gentleman's private library with their leaves uncut. He then disclosed the reading his father most relished. These were the bestsellers, Ryder Haggard, Mary Corelli, Stanley Wayman, Anthony Hope, Prisoner of Zender and so forth, and the rising star of the Edwardian period, Edgar Wallace. This sort of thing was right up J.M. Barry's Quality Street. After all, Barry himself wasn't so different, except that he was that most aware of authors. In What Every Woman Knows, 1908, he famously declared, there are few more impressive sights in the world than a Scotsman on the make. <laughs> but it was in Alice Sit by the Fire, a three-act play of 1905, that he took aim at literary name-dropping in this delicious dialogue. Alice, are you very studious, Cosmo? Cosmo. My favourite authors are William Shakespeare and William Milton. They are grand, don't you think? <laughs> Alice, I'm only a woman. I, I'm afraid they sometimes bore me, especially William Milton. <laughs> Cosmo, with relief. Do they? Me too. This brings us back to our Labour MPs. It's not to Im impugn the truthfulness of their responses to the question which books most influenced them, if we suppose they read other things too and enjoyed these other things rather more. Knowing their answers would be published and striving to make a serious impression, 
they put on the equivalent of their Sunday suit, if I may adopt the language of working class respectability. But it would transgress the bounds of credulity if they were never entranced by the bestsellers of their day, such as Hall Caine, who penned the first million-selling novel in Britain, or Nat Gould, who at his death in 1919 had turned out 130 novels all about horse racing at the rate of five a year, and who clocked up sales of 24 million. Or Charles Garvis. Arnold Bennett identified him as the most successful novelist in England, who in 1912-13 alone sold one and three-quarter million copies to add to the six million he'd already, uh, uh, he'd already sold. His literary agent said of the Sixpenny Garvises that they were as plentiful as the leaves of Vallombrosa, a delightful simile deployed originally in Paradise Lost about the vast number of fallen angels. Although whether the author of Paradise Lost was William or John Milton, I really can never quite remember. It's obligatory that every tale must have a twist. So let me introduce mine by describing two quite similar scenes. The first is a reception in the early 1870s at the swanky Regent's Park address of a celebrity literary couple who were living in sin, as liberal intellectuals are still, I believe, required by law to do. <laughs> at their party, the male host confidentially disclosed to each excited guest, Celia is going to have a baby. My second scene takes place 50 years later, just after the Great War, and is a packed political meeting of 2,000 newly enfranchised women in Paisley, at which a note was passed up to the platform speaker. This read, Will Mrs. Burnett Smith tell us whether Captain Hannay is going to marry Jean Adair? Here I've given the game away, or perhaps not, because who now knows that Mrs. Burnett Smith was once a prolific writer of romances under the pen name Annie S. Swan. What the audience was keen to find out was the next episode of her serial story running in the magazine The People's Friend. This still leaves unidentified the celebrity literary couple of Regent's Park. He was George Henry Lewis, the positivist critic, biographer of Goethe and paramour of Mary Ann Evans, better known as George Eliot. And the Celia who was going to have a baby was the sister of Dorothea Brooke, the heroine of Middlemarch, which was then being serialised. Now, no one will want to argue that George Eliot and Annie S. Swan are authors of equal philosophical weight and permanent literary value, yet we need to allow that a good story, gripped alike the cerebral select of a literary salon and the humble housewife at her local newsagents, united them too with fuddy-duddy dons, Gossip had it that the Dean of King's College and the Cambridge University Registrar cut chapel to be the first to discover the denouement of The Hound of the Baskervilles as the last instalment of its serialisation appeared. We should therefore guard against literary snobbery and resist a temptation to divide works into highbrow and lowbrow as if phrenology was an exact science. <laughs> to, to assume that only the best people read the best books is a, is, is, is a fallacy. Similarly, we should acknowledge that bestsellers were read by all. Reading is an altogether mysterious business. No two people read the same book in the same way. Likewise, no one person reads the same book for a second time in the same way. 
When evaluating the impact of books, for far too long literary scholars poured over the text and ignored the audience. Reception history is obviously aimed to reverse that imbalance, yet it remains true that we can't easily know how books are read, what holds or loses a reader's attention, and what sensations they experience. Readers of George Eliot might not have been drawn to her for her profound reflections about religion and evolution, and may well have skipped such passages as, the, as there were. Many a so-called classic has this in common with a bestseller, a story well told, containing a cast of characters whose deeds and relationships make readers care and whose rites of passage they follow as closely as if they were members of their own family. By convention and by preference, a good read will contain a roller coaster ride of emotions, and for us, quite as much as the Victorians, this must involve moral tests and, tr and struggles before, ideally, virtue is rewarded and vice confounded. We must also take into account how stories come to us in different forms, such as through serialization and abridgment. The journalist who quizzed the first Labour MPs in 1906 about the books that influenced them was W.T. Stead, who learned his trade as a publicist during Gladstone's Bulgarian Atrocities campaign in 1876. Ten years later, he courted imprisonment for exposing child prostitution and white slavery, and he eventually sank with the Titanic in 1912. His belief that the dead communicate with the living means that we cannot rule out him one day sensationally reporting his own drowning. Until then, I should inform you that Stead had been quick to exploit the new printing technology and expiry of copyright protection for many classic authors. In May 1895, he launched Penny Poets, followed in January 1896 by Penny Novels. By October 1897, his 60 volumes of Penny Poets had cleared five and a quarter million copies and the 90 penny novels about 9 million. These last were condensations of classics, cut down to 30 to 40,000 words, ditching a huge amount of verbiage, and in the process, bringing the George Eliots of literature closer to the NES Swans. As we reel away in horror at the Philistinism and brutality involved, Let's remember that we do the same and worse in adaptations for radio, television and cinema, and theatre reputations are regularly made by amputating Shakespeare and dressing what's left in a fancy modern wardrobe. Also remember that many a classic author wrote hurriedly and carelessly the notion that readers should dwell on their every word is a ridiculous superstition. Sir Walter Scott, scribbling away furiously to pay off debts, himself recommended, quote, the laudable practice of skipping. <laughs> Exceptional people in virtually every respect behave like unexceptional people. Lloyd George, when Prime Minister, liked to unwind with what he called shilling shockers, <laughs> cliffhanging thrillers and pulsating romances. His predecessor Asquith enjoyed thrillers too. Otherwise, he could be found sitting up in bed translating Kipling into Greek. <laughs> Surely that was an effort, queried his wife Margot. Not at all, it's relaxation, he purred, with all the effortless superiority of a Balliol Greatsman. <laughs> the following evening, their last in Downing Street, he read the Bible. And what part? Inevitably, it was the crucifixion. 
There would be no political resurrection for Asquith three days later or any other time. Yet, at whatever point he retired to bed and in whatever condition, his nickname was Perrier-Jouet, he never broke the habit of reading for two hours every night. Now, there's no space here to pursue off-duty prime ministerial reading, although it would be neglectful to disregard Harold Macmillan, who was always keen to go to bed with a trollop. <laughs> recent, recent prime ministers seem more interested in the photo shoot opportunity as they set off on holiday with the title of some improving reading just accidentally peeping out from under their arm. In this, they are allies of the chattering classes who are mortified if they're not seen with the book of the moment. How else to explain Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time occupying the bestseller list for a record-busting 237 weeks after publication in 1988? Similarly, to take this quest abroad, here for a moment, consider the impact of a speech in 2006 by President Hugo Chavez, in which he denounced George W. Bush as the devil and waved in the air Noam Chomsky's hegemony or survival. That was the right on, or should it be the left on, professor's polemic, of course, against American foreign policy. Chavez nominated Chomsky as essential reading for every member of the Venezuelan assembly and for all Americans. Originally published in 2003 and languishing at 160,772nd in the Amazon book charts. <laughs> On the Wednesday, Chavez gave his speech. By the Thursday afternoon, it had been catapulted into the top 10. Doubtless the coffee tables of Islington and Notting Hill, as well as of Manhattan and Brentwood Bel Air, groaned under the weight of its radical chic too. But if I may tender a little advice to anyone here who is seeking to impress by leaving lying around in the family drawing room a hardback copy of the latest hefty non-fiction prize winner, I suggest it prominently displays a bookmark towards the end to which you can point and nonchalantly pronounce, oh, the critics loved it, but it hasn't done that much for me. <laughs> I've now strayed into my I've now strayed from my theme of light reading for intellectual heavyweights into heavy reading for well I won't press that point but instead <laughs> commend to you an obiter dictum of Oliver Edwards a Wiltshire gentleman's son who was up at Oxford in the late 1720s with Sam Johnson Dr. Johnson, when they met by chance some 50 years later at St. Clement's Danes on the Strand near the law courts, Edwards remarked at the end of their chat, you are a philosopher, Dr. Johnson. I've tried in my time to be a philosopher, but I don't know how cheerfulness was always breaking through. <laughs> I only hope that the same occurred to Hilary Benn, who, while still at primary school, was given for a Christmas present in the 1970s by his father, Tony, the Labour cabinet minister, Isaac Deutsch's three-volume biography of Trotsky. <laughs> and if you're not completely stunned by that, then let me administer the knockout blow by reciting the Prime Minister Tony Blair's carefully calibrated admission in 2006 that Deutsch's trilogy, quote, quote, made a very deep impression on me. In 2017, he embellished this further, revealing in an interview that as an undergraduate at St. John's Oxford, it transformed him into a bit of a trot. 
I picked it up and I literally didn't stop reading it at all, all night. I suddenly thought, the world's full of these extraordinary causes and injustices. And here's this guy, Trotsky, who was so inspired by all this that he went out to create a Russian revolution and change the world. It was like a light going on. Blair, as we know, is a one-off marvel and beyond caricature. Therefore, <laughs> it, it's not at all contradictory that 20 years before, in 1996, when he was only the leader of the opposition and didn't want to spook Middle England, he forgot all about his one-night stand with Trotsky and instead chose Walter Scott's Ivanhoe to take to, to his desert island on the popular radio program Desert Island Dis. To return to Lloyd George, he once told a friend, I can't read novels that end badly. This is essential. When you finish a story, you shouldn't be left downcast but uplifted your fibre strengthened so as to return refreshed to the serious cares of life. If there is to be a shootout between realist misery and gossamer romance, my money will be on Mills and Boone winning almost every time. Would the American equivalent be Kensington Books and the Canadian Harlequin? No matter. A couple of final examples. One involves the Nobel Prize-winning poet, W.B. Yeats, who used to lap up Dorothy L. Sayers' detective stories and Zane Grey Westerns. One can read them while the mind sleeps, he, air <laughs> he airily told Sean O'Casey. Now, this was Willie being superior and dismissive, and I don't believe him. O'Casey and Yeats had had more than one spat about the plays the Abbey Theatre should be putting on, including O'Casey's own. What happened here was that Yeats became flustered when O'Casey, visiting his Lancaster Gate apartment, espied the Zane Grey and Dorothy Sayers when he lifted up the thick green cloth <coughs> covering them. This exposure was damaging to the great man's self-image, that he should be discovered devouring them rather than, say, toying with an 800-page philosophical novel by Dostoevsky or some other depressed and depressing Russian, all patiently translated by Constant, Constance Garnett. Instead of his mind being switched off, it's more believable to suppose it was wide awake with excitement. A doctoral thesis about the influence on Yeats of six shooting gunslingers and suave Lord Peter Whimsey awaits the aspiring scholar in this room. <laughs> I want lastly to consider the peculiar case of Isaiah Berlin and Jules Verne. Quite possibly, there are here this afternoon some distinguished veterans, why am I looking at Roger, who came across the philosopher Isaiah Berlin in Oxford. Certainly, once encountered, never forgotten, with his booming imperative voice and torrential talk, timed at almost 400 words a minute, he was a stenographer's nightmare made flesh. <laughs> It's almost unimaginable now, but once upon a time, an Oxford Don was considered a prize catch for smart social gatherings in the capital. Not just any performing Oxford Don, but Isaiah Berlin in particular. He sported all the right credentials, an exotic provenance from a Russian-Latvian emigre family, schooled at St Paul's, followed by a double first at Oxford, an All Souls Prize Fellowship, and onwards and upwards to the presidency of the British Academy, a knighthood, and the Order of Merit. He gained Churchill's attention by brilliant dispatches from wartime Washington. On the strength of this, Churchill in 1944 got his secretary to invite Berlin to lunch. He swiftly grew disenchanted as Berlin gave dim-witted answers to his probing questions about 
how long the war would last and whether FDR would be re-elected. Churchill fumed to an aide that Berlin was just a typical civil servant after all, impressive on paper but useless face to face. It turned out he'd been cross-examining the petrified songsmith Irving Berlin, <laughs> composer of A White Christmas. Isaiah, by contrast, was always dependably scintillating. We can easily imagine a hostess on the phone to a friend post-war saying, darling, darling, you simply must come to supper because we've got Isaiah. He's frightfully intellectual, of course, but you're not going to believe it. He can recite the plots of over 50 Jules Verne novels. It's terribly amusing. Now, this was actually true. So my question is, was this accomplishment simply a show-off party piece, or did Jules Verne mean more to him? Undoubtedly, Berlin had a capacious and retentive mind, but to rattle off over 50 Jules Verne's novels seemed to be, seems to be overdoing things and to put him in the train spotter collector maniac category. And yet, and yet, we learn from Michael Ignatieff's biography that Berlin first read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in Russian translation and later in life when asked what he had wanted to be as a boy, replied that, quote, he used to dream of being a scientist in a Jules Verne novel, undersea, watching the world of nature through a porthole. Ignatieff explains this as a philosophical fantasy, quote, exploring the depths, yet remaining immune from their dangers, which is clever stuff, but... I prefer Berlin's own interpretation in an essay of his on education. Talking about the importance of popularizers, however imperfect their rendering, he instanced Voltaire's 1738 Elements of the Philosophy of Newton, and a century and a half later, how, quote, those other great vulgarizers, Schulz, Verne, and H.G. Wells, in their own highly imaginative way, had had, quote, an immensely liberating effect. He went on to argue that while the academic value of a subject varies according to the ratio and interplay of ideas to facts, quote, a gifted expositor can put life into virtually any topic. One incidental curiosity to note about Verne is that while in the English-speaking world an admiration for him will at best be thought amiably eccentric, in continental Europe it's altogether different. Intellectuals are an endangered species across most of the globe, but not in Verne's native Paris, which remains their natural habitat. Paris is... Paris especially, where they can sound off and procreate with happy abandon. There Verne is still esteemed as a towering figure for his enduring impact on literary avant-gardism and surrealism. In 2017, after President Macron assumed office and before he became Jupiter, the Elysee Palace let it be known that Macron was a Jules Verne fan, and that the presidential pet, or as you would call it, the first dog, was named Nemo. <laughs> In that same essay on education, Berlin roundly berated academic abstruseness, jargon, and windy theorizing. Quote, pretentious rhetoric, Deliberate or compulsory, uh, deliberate or compulsive obscurity or vagueness, metaphysical patter studded with irrelevant or misleading allusions to at best half understood scientific or philosophical theories or to famous names, is an old but at present particularly prevalent device for concealing poverty of thought or muddle 
and sometimes perilously near to a confidence trick. That was in 1975. In the intervening 40-odd years, things have deteriorated rather than improved, but that's another story. Anyway, Jane Austen got there first. She has Catherine Morland delightfully declaring Northanger Abbey, I cannot speak well enough to be unintelligible. (laughs) (laughs) To conclude, great men and women do not inhabit a different planet from the rest of us, and there's no embarrassment in putting your feet up. We all do have to slog through academic tomes and articles that are not exactly riveting, Hard labour of this kind is not just character building in a Victorian manner, but rewarding, often in unexpected ways. Still, it's seldom you must read every word, and it's a part of the intelligent person's armoury to become adept at gutting such works to establish what's important and what's not. The late 19th, early 20th century scholar George Saintsbury who was a wine connoisseur as well as an omnivorous reader, called it the art of skimming come skipping. (laughs) Everyone benefits from time off. Paradoxically, you may well find yourself reading every word of light literature because it's so gripping. This then triggers all sorts of connections, cross-pollinations and constructive ideas which help in tackling other problems. No need, therefore, to scold yourself or apologise for indulging in a little light entertainment. (coughs) The essential thing is to be intellectually honest, but every sermon should finish with a benediction. Mine is simply this, go forth and enjoy your soaps. (laughs) The essential thing is to be intellectually honest, also to remain fresh, and to put that another way, avoid cliches like the plague. (laughs) Thank you.